Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. I'm Sam Ashurst, I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm a podcast person. And normally I'm joined by Dan Martin, but he's off being a special effects person uh, somewhere in France, where I'm sure he's covered in gore and blood and, and chunks of flesh. All fake, of course, unless, you know, he's gone on a bender, which does happen. Dan, we miss you. He'll be back next time. But until then, I'm joined by the glorious... Shay Mosifin. Shay Mosifin. And Shay Mosifin is also a podcast person. You'll have heard her voice on Movie Melt, on the evolution of horror, and basically a regular on the Arrow Video podcast by this point. Good to have you with us, Shay. Thank you, Sam. And thank you for watching Life Force with me. That's this week's movie, one that you're familiar with because you are a, a canon fan. And before we get into Life Force, what are some of your favourite movies from the canon canon? (laughs) That's a very difficult question. Well, I think my top favourite movie as a child, and I am embarrassed to admit as an adult, is Breakin. I've seen Breakin Part 1 over a hundred times. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) I know the soundtrack backwards and forwards. I know that there's a Kraftwerk song in the movie and not on the soundtrack. And it's just deeply ingrained in my brain. But some of my other favorite canon movies, let's see here, definitely Cyborg and Bloodsport and I guess anything with Van Damme. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because people might not realize this, but Van Damme is actually in Breaking, right? He is. Yeah, his very first scene ever. (laughs) He's wearing spandex and clapping and shaking what the Lord gave him. (laughs) And he's alongside Michael Kesey, who is his co-star in Kickboxer. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Right. Well, I have never seen Breakin'. I know you've seen it over a hundred times. So. Oh my God. Yeah. We do need to do that one together. But before we do that, let's talk about the main feature presentation, which is the glorious, the great Life Force. Now, this one is kind of a bit of a divisive one, I guess. There are people involved with canon films who believe that this is their best movie ever, but there's plenty of people who've watched it and who say it's the worst movie ever. A lot of people don't know what to make of it. Exactly, and I can kind of understand both perspectives in a a strange kind of way, because... This is a very, very unique movie. Structurally, it almost feels more like a a TV series that's been condensed into two hours Mm -hmm. because it jumps around so much, the tone shifts so much, even genres. It starts off feeling like a a remake of Alien where, you know, the genitalia has been switched around as you observed. (laughs) Yeah, there's a a phallic-shaped ship in this film, but once you enter, it's... um vaginal a thousand percent yeah yeah, there's a long sequence where they're um uh, traveling through a space vagina whereas alien obviously is full of space penises definitely a big alien influence on this to the extent of hiring dan o'bannon who co-wrote alien and wrote dark star and this is very very dan o'bannon-y in a way absolutely and visually too they were referencing a lot of Giger's art. Oh, definitely, completely. But what's interesting about the script is that apparently O'Bannon was brought on like eight drafts in. And oh, that explains it. Okay. Yeah, and so um, he wasn't like the the person who was driving this project forward. He was someone who was brought on to kind of help. And even in that context, he wasn't happy with with the final product. He didn't like the fact, for example, that Hooper 
wanted to change the instigating space thing. He wanted to specify it as being Halley's Comet, which was going round um, that year. Yes. O'Bannon yes. didn't like that edition at all. I think he thought it was cheesy or something like that. Yeah, but, and too um, dated. So, yeah, this is a devices film, even amongst its creative team, but not within this creative team. Because no, no, we no. we love it, right? Why do we love it? Well, I love O'Bannon, and I love what he did with Return of the Living Dead. And there are so many parallels to Life Force and Return of the Living Dead. And without spoiling it, the end goes really big (laughs) in both of the movies. And also the way that he portrays the vampires is so similar to how the reanimated corpses are in in Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, what's crazy about it is that I think Return of the Living Dead came after Life Force, both released in the same year. And I don't know if Toby Hooper was given like a sneak preview or what, because the way he shoots the uh, vampire strapped to the table and the, the special effects style... The way the animatronic moves, everything about it looks so similar. They're so similar, yeah. To, to the woman zombie who gets put on the table in Return of Living Dead, the mm-hmm. one that's like, the pain the of pain, being I'm yeah. dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so good. And I think pain is a recurring theme in O'Bannon's stuff. He suffered from like a serious stomach uh, illness that caused him a great deal of pain every day. And so, you know, the chest burster in Alien, you know, during the meal. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah, absolutely. Some of the stuff in Return of Living Dead. And in this, I think it's him really trying to come to terms with this constant pain that he is dealing with. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, O'Bannon is a big, big hero of mine. I think he's a very underrated figure in horror. You know, there's talk of him being the person who actually inspired John Carpenter uh, to make Halloween. Absolutely. Um, there was a short film that he made at film school about someone stalking a babysitter that O'Bannon directed. Oh, yeah. that's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's get into the meat of this movie because there's so much to discuss. So much. It's hard to know where to start. I, th- I think structure for me is, is the place that I want to start because this is such a unique film. I don't really know a- any movie like it where it's almost like you don't know who the lead is from one minute to the next because... It's like the lead actor is passing a baton to the next character that steps into frame. And, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, this is our hero. You know, Rails back, disappears for a long time, then he comes back. You're not sure if he's ever coming back. Exactly. And interestingly, when you watched this last night, it really stuck out to you. Oh, yeah, there's a flashback where it's almost like they're trying to explain something posthumously that could have been explained at the beginning of the film. Well, what's interesting about that is as part of my research, I discovered that originally that flashback was in the opening of the movie. Apparently it went 35 minutes long and Canon didn't like the fact that it kind of slowed everything down. So against Toby Hooper's wishes, they took that section out and put it in the middle of the movie in the form of that flashback. Presumably that scene where he's explaining everything was a reshoot. And actually that that sequence does feel like it slows the whole thing down. Um, It does. It feels a little clunky. I heard there was a massive re-editing and that Toby Hooper was in tears in the editing room. And it was after a screening in America, I think in New Jersey. They said that in the extras. And it didn't land well with this one particular audience. And so the distributor just freaked out and basically forced him to to cut everything up. So that makes total sense. Yeah, that really does. That's absolutely part of what would have made him feel heartbroken because the pacing is so strange. It's so disjointed. And it really does feel actually like the work of a hatchet editor who's trying to up the pace and all the rest of it. But it just makes everything feel so uh, disjointed and strange. But... 
that's part of the reason why I love the movie so much mm-hmm. because it's unpredictable because it feels off because it feels surreal and weird mm-hmm. and yeah it's kind of like another comparison to Return of the Living Dead is the fact that Trash spends a great deal of that film naked or so you think it's actually not that much of the runtime and the same here Base Girl or, or whatever she's called in the credits when you think of this movie you think oh yeah that's the film where the woman's walking around naked for the whole thing <laughs> It's it's only a very kind of short period of time. Hooper is a master of... He's the master of showing so much with so little. Absolutely, Like, I remember reading about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and he was expecting a PG rating because there isn't a lot of blood in it. And when you think about it, there really isn't. But it's such a horrifying atmosphere. (laughs) Your brain fills in all the details. And what I love about Life Force is he's gone so huge. It's the first time I'd seen him really let loose. One of the things that he talks about in the extras, one of the appeals of working with Canon was these were producers who just let him go free. They let him be as wild as he wanted to be. Right, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, that feeling was cut short when in the edit room it was reorganized and stuff but you can still see that joy and and excitement in the movie you know of a director who's really letting loose and I actually think one of I love that about him thinking that um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was going to get a PG rating because one of the things I kind of like most about Hooper certainly in kind of interviews and stuff like that is he does seem to have this weird kind of naivety or or innocence about him. Like, he genuinely thought he was making a comedy with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, for the kids. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, Texas Chainsaw is a a masterpiece, but I do sometimes wonder if Toby Hooper's heart is more in sci-fi than horror because this and Invaders from Mars feel very sincere. And obviously Invaders from Mars is another uh, of his canon movies. He made three with them. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 was the other one in that trio. And that definitely is a comedy. That's him saying, okay, you didn't quite get it the first time. So I'm going to absolutely amp it up in the second one. I would love to have seen what he would have done with The Life Force 2. Sadly, it wasn't to be. Invaders from Mars is one of my favorite Toby Hooper movies, actually. I think it's fantastic. It's so good. I love the way that he embodies the 50s yeah in the 80s and to him that was nostalgia the same with john carpenter and the thing yeah absolutely yeah. another one of my favorite movies yeah and actually yeah there is a little bit of uh, john carpenter's the thing in life force in, in some of the design to a certain extent and in terms of atmosphere like there's one scene in particular that reminds me of the thing maybe slight spoilers precious our heads so please do watch life force this is an amazing disc with tons of extras please do pick it up but the scene where they're with uh, old patrick stewart who by the way says that toby hooper is his favorite director he's ever worked with that scene where he's kind of revealed is very the thing <laughs> so much <And> there's <laughs> one of my favorite creepy sequences scary sequences in this movie involving blood i won't say any more than that oh it's so good again very very the thing um absolutely and there's a scene where they go back onto the ship and discover what has happened to the crew and it reminded me so much of the outpost oh god yeah absolutely and yeah really really great practical effects and and wonderfully creepy sound design again it has that in common with the thing and you really can feel Hooper's class on every frame. It was a, a canon movie about a, a naked lady alien, and it somehow feels highbrow 
or about as highbrow as this concept can be. She is so interesting. Yeah. I absolutely loved her as a character. Yeah. I, can we talk about Matilda May a little oh, bit? Oh, absolutely, please. This was her first movie. She was a French ballerina and was 18 and was very comfortable in her skin. She was, according to Hooper, maybe the, he said, 50th to 70th audition. And part of the reason I think she got the role is she does such a good job with acting with her eyes. She can do so much with her face. She does this wide-eyed kind of come hither but back off thing with her eyes, which is so hammer. Matilda has the poise and the gait of a jean Rolin starlet. Like Brigitte Leahy. Absolutely. Or or a Jess Franco star like Lena Rome. I've yeah. actually never thought of Life Force in those terms before, but it absolutely feels like a film it's from so... the Euro. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's Euro horror. And I, mm. I feel like maybe there's a little bit of influence on Toby Hooper being in the UK mm. for the filming of this. There's a lot of hammer horror in this. Absolutely. Like the vampires, without spoiling too much, they turn to dust, just like Christopher yeah. Lee yeah, absolutely. <laughs> in The Horror of Dracula. So yeah, there's a lot of that going on. And I think about Fascination, the, the famous scene with Brigitte Leahy with her Reaper. <clears throat> scythe mm-hmm. and this character is reaping souls <laughs> it's very um it's so interesting to see a character so desirable and so she's an entirely different kind of horror villain like she's the ultimate weapon she has black hole levels of gravitas and weaponizing desire it, she's what everybody fears in a relationship too of any kind like i'm gonna give and give and give and not get anything back and, and, and like, she's still desirable. <laughs> Even after all that, like after she drains so much around her without giving too much away, our lead character just cannot stop thinking about her. <laughs> That's really, really interesting. It does seem like whenever there is like a, a female horror monster is extremely centered around the sexuality. You know, Natasha Henstridge in Species, for example, there's another example I'm going to give in recommendations. It would be nice to have a more kind of Freddy Krueger style villainess. Yeah. Um, maybe that's still to come in the future. But I can um, see that. Yeah. What I liked about her, though, is she's so vulnerable. You see a naked woman walking down the hall and it's befuddling <laughs> to every single man. And, and that scene had no other women <laughs> at all. There is a kind of a significant amount of male gaze in this movie, obviously, both in the characters and in the camera. But somehow it doesn't actually feel sleazy. It's lit so beautifully. Yeah, yeah it, it's very, it's crafted for nudity. Like really, there's an art to lighting the nude body. Absolutely. And Toby Hooper nailed it. Sounds like a very strange thing to say, but not especially sexualized in a weird kind of way. It's presented as very normal. Mm-hmm. Um, she kind of moves like the Terminator. Um, <laughs> yeah, she does. <laughs> and, and Arnie isn't sexualized when he's walking around for he's found his clothes. Yeah, he's, he's also nude. Yeah, he's also nude. You know what this reminds me of was a photography class I took years ago. I had a classmate who was failing and <laughs> she just could not wrap her mind around how to do this project. The teacher kept saying, show me the real you, show me the real you. So she decided to strip nude and go downtown in Portland, Oregon. Oh, wow. And around two in the morning, she set up a tripod and she did long exposures of her walking nude at the side of the road. Oh, wow. (laughs) And they reminded me so much of Life Force. Holy shit. And there's a very disarming effect 
to seeing a nude woman just in an environment that's typically not welcoming of that right type of 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 exposition yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah vulnerability a- absolutely yeah i just love that she looks the way that she looks and is a destroyer of worlds <laughs> absolutely very very cool character we do get an interview with matilda may on the disc which is really really interesting it's great to get her perspective especially as you know she didn't know english when she signed on for this movie um she had to learn the language for the little dialogue she has and for the audition she had to learn the lines phonetically because um, she didn't speak the language so it's great to hear her voice on the actual disc itself I'm not going to list everything that's here but just some highlights because there really is so much there's an audio commentary with the visual effects artist Douglas Smith which is moderated by Howard S. Berger which is very exciting and there's also a commentary with the makeup effects artist Nick Maley. The effects are just mind-boggling. The crew from Flash Gordon was working on this. Yeah. Huge matte paintings, like huge panes of glass, um, acrylic, crayon. <laughs> Even used like uh, airbrush. Like we have light effects. We have prosthetic effects. Over like 500 body parts were used near the end of the film. Like. Apps and, and just the corpses are so striking. They're some of my favorite corpses, and it's weird saying that out loud, <laughs> but they're so memorable. Their the, eyes are so gross. They really are, yeah. There's some great gross moments. This really reminds me of a lot of Italian stuff, like, um, you know, City of the Living Dead at the end, but there's a really lovely moment, which I won't spoil, but where one of the vampires runs towards some prison bars let's just say that and the effect is very very italian like, oh you're right and some of lucio fulci's more ethereal films really shine exactly. like like manhattan baby and yes. enigma there's a lot of that in this too enigma was the one i was thinking of. oh yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah so if you love arrow then this for me is kind of the quintessential arrow movie and the quintessential arrow release absolutely stacked with stuff. There's an interview with uh, Steve Railsback as well. We haven't really talked too much about Railsback, but he appears regularly on VHS Quest, the other podcast. He sure does. He stars in a lot of kind of <laughs> junky action movies. But I really like his performance in this. Like, he really, really goes for it. He does. He gives it everything. I didn't know he was method either. Apparently, he was going full method for this movie. That actually kind of makes sense, especially his um, delivery of the line. Uh, what is it? Let me go. Yeah, let me go. <laughs> he says that at least 50 times. And you can feel the passion every time. But yeah, Life Force, really, really huge recommendation if this isn't in your collection. If you've passed it by, it really is worth a second look. And it's honestly worth it for the extras alone. I'm going to name one more because it's an important one. Cannon Fodder, The Making of Life Force, which is a feature length documentary about this movie, mainly centered around the working relationship between Toby Hooper, his crew, and especially his producers. So yeah, if you're a Canon fan like Shay is, you will love this release. Oh, it's such um, a great bonus feature. I I learned a lot about Canon. I didn't know that they went to England and established a base there. I just started making movies and I learned a lot about Toby's influences. Toby was inspired by Quatermass, oh, that which makes, makes total so sense. sense yeah. And I guess he wanted to shoot this on 70 millimeter or he wanted it to like at least encompass a 70 millimeter span. Like he wanted this to be a huge movie and he yeah. definitely it, made it happen. It's kind of like, and, and that kind of brings us back to where we open this discussion, this idea that it feels like TV series condensed into one movie. 
maybe that's unfair actually it feels like maybe toby hooper's vhs shelf condensed into one movie because there's alien in there there's a little bit of 2001 a space odyssey in there Mm -hmm. definitely hammer stuff you know dracula at one point um the character goes to yorkshire which obviously the the novel feels a bit random in life force but if you're a dracula fan you'll know why that pops up Mm -hmm. um there's just it feels like so many wonderful movies all kind of struggling for the spotlight And and that's what makes this film special for me oh absolutely a yeah. little Lovecraft nested in there too. Oh, definitely. And the Quatermark, yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. So huge recommendation from Shay and I for Life Force. But let's move on to recommendations based on the movie itself. I'm going to go first because I've basically already talked about one of them. I was planning on recommending Return of the Living Dead before oh. you brought it up. That's all right. That, it's, it's it's all good. It Whoops. just shows that it's a good recommendation. <laughs> yeah, released in the same year as Life Force. Uh, it's also an existential exploration of pain, death and love. It's just such a special film. One thing I didn't talk about in Life Force or Return of the Living Dead when we discussed it earlier, uh, that is the music. So it's a score in Life Force by Henry Mancini, um, who apparently came on board when he found out that the opening was basically silent. And so he'd be able to get his 2001 on and really like um, make that stand out. So he composed this operetta for the for the opening. And Mancini, you know, probably best associated with comedy stuff like Pink Panther movies mm-hmm. or that kind of thing. But it's a very, very impactful and weird score for Life Force. I love it, um, especially if you watch the international version, which has more of his music. I think the theatrical has like some Michael Kamen stuff mixed in with the Mancini. And yeah, one of the things I really love about Return of the Living Dead is the music. Uh, Obviously not a score, but a soundtrack. Um, But it's so beautifully put together and it really gives everything such a vibrant punk energy with very naturalistic and real performances. So... If you love zombie movies, and Life Force really does feel like a zombie movie, as well as a vampire movie, especially in the third act, you will love Return of the Living Dead, Dark Star's Great 2 from the Dan O'Bannon canon. And if you combine Dark Star and Return of the Living Dead, you would have Life Force. So just watch any of Dan O'Bannon's movies and you'll be happy. Shay, what's first from you? I chose Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat from 1989, four years after Life Force. Of course, with Life Force, Texas-born Toby Hooper in England, making a genre blender film about vampires. And here we have Anthony Hickox, London-born, making a genre blender movie about vampires in America with an American cast. (laughs) Yeah, the last place that you'd expect vampires to be is in space, (laughs) like in Life Force, but... Uh, The last place on Earth that you'd expect a vampire to be is in a sun-soaked western town in Utah. And that's where this takes place. So the plot is a little kooky. In an attempt to reduce dependence on real human blood, these vampires survive on a blood-like serum that's mass-produced by David Carradine. (laughs) He's like a local vampire overlord. But there's these other vampires that are like, man, we're sick of this vegan, like, fake blood. We really want human blood again. And they're teetering on the brink of civil war. And then Bruce Campbell shows up, and he's a very dweeby relative of Van Helsing. So the balance is tipped in this blood-starved colony. Yeah, so just as Life Force is a genre blender with incredible practical effects, Sundown the Vampire in Retreat is part Western, part campy sci-fi, and part vampire lore. 
with plenty of visual gore gags. It also has a packed and incredible cast. I mentioned Bruce Campbell, David Carradine, but also M. Emmett Walsh, Deborah Foreman, and Dana Ashbrook. And the story really flows in a similar way to Life Force, like the lead characters kind of take their time to take root. Yeah, this is just a really fun, campy slice of the late 80s. It was never released on Blu-ray, and I think uh, it deserves a wider audience. So there you go. Definitely. I'm a big fan of Sundown. Love that movie. Very, very quirky. My next recommendation is basically an art house take on the same themes that Life Force explores weaponizing Scarlett Johansson's alien nudity to entrap a mixture of human victims. It's infinitely more surreal and disturbing. There's a beach sequence that will stay with you forever after you see this movie. It's very, very chilling. This is one of the most tonally jarring but perfectly suited double bills you'll ever have, but maybe put on under the skin first, even though I think technically it's the better movie. You probably want to cheer yourself up a bit with Life Force afterwards. But yeah, both are masterpieces in their own way. Under the skin, I recommend it. Shay, what is last from you? I didn't feel like I could talk about Life Force without talking about Planet of the Vampires from 1965. So a full filmmaking generation before Hooper, we have Mario Bava, who turned out a masterfully crafted Technicolor nightmare about two spaceships who crash land on a planet inhabited by a disembodied malevolence, kind of like the the id in Forbidden Planet, Mm. (laughs) who can possess the dead. And like Hooper, Bava is so good at creating suspense. He's genius and and so precise. His lines are so clean, his colors are so bold. And this early blend of science fiction and horror was a massive influence on Dan O'Bannon. He referenced it directly while writing Alien. And I'm going to completely guess also with Life Force. And where Hooper often said more with less in his earlier films, he definitely went all out on Life Force, as we mentioned earlier, and Bava also pulls out all of the stops with Planet. They're both exquisite visual banquets. All right, perfect, perfect recommendation. Yeah, that is a pretty great lineup of movies for anyone, whether they love Life Force or not. That is a a great set of movies. So uh, let's hope that we continue the trend of recommending cool stuff because we're going to move on to things we've been watching in the past couple of weeks. I'm going to start with a very bleak movie. I've got a couple of bleak movies this time, all dedicated to Dan. Um, But yeah, we're going to start with a Fritz Lang movie I'd overlooked, starring Edward G. Robinson as a shy painter who falls in love with absolutely the wrong woman, That movie is Scarlet Street. It's a tragic tale with twists and turns too upsetting to describe here. But if you like dark and depressing stuff, and I certainly do, then Scarlet Street will take you to lots of horrible places and you'll enjoy every minute of it right up until the impossibly sad ending. Yes, it's uh, part one of this fortnight's bleak fest. You gotta love it. Scarlet Street, I recommend it. Shay, what's first from you? Sam, I watched a movie from 1995 called Super Fights. (laughs) It's not bleak at all. In fact, this is what would happen if the MMA and the WWE morphed into a Hong Kong-style action melodrama in the vein of Miami Connection and Rocky. It's incredible. It's a beautiful thing. If uh, Sugar High were a movie, it might look like this. (laughs) Director Tony Leung uses his stunt expertise and wild color palette to saturate this cautionary kickboxing tale 
with hyperactivity and candy colors. Starring a young lead with impulse control issues, he takes these gobs of vitamins that look like sweet tarts because they're supposed to pump him up and make him a, you know, good fighter. And he just wants to be a movie star. And he has this opportunity after saving a woman on the, on the, the streets to become a super fight fighter. But he finds out that the person running the super fights is involved in illegal activities. <laughs> the lead in this movie is pretty innocent and doe-eyed and actually a pretty good fighter. But uh, yeah, this is definitely a, a one in the campy category and it's criminally underseen. It's so funny. It's so fun. It's an absolute blast. And I also recommend other movies by Tony Leung, including Blood Moon, uh, starring Gary Daniels. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah, I, I would definitely seek that one out if you can. It's kind of hard to find, but I think it is on the YouTube. Oh, wow. All right. Well, maybe stick that on after uh, watching my next film because you will need a boost because Scarlet Street uh, looks like the Muppet movie compared to my next <laughs> recommendation, which is The Pawnbroker. It's uh, directed by Sidney Lumet, and it is very, very harrowing indeed. It follows our titular pawnbroker as he tries to eke out a living in an East Harlem slum, paying out cash for items that are more valuable to the owners than they are to him. But this is a man who values nothing other than money, not even or especially his own life. Now that's because he's a Holocaust survivor with heavy, heavy survivor's guilt and memories that invade his day-to-day -day experience at an almost subliminal speed. It's one of the best representations of PTSD and the invasive thoughts that can come with that disorder that I've ever seen. And it builds to an unexpected but inevitable ending. The way it all kind of comes together is really shocking, but feels like it's absolutely how this film is meant to end. Um, incredible, incredible score by Quincy Jones. It really adds so much to the picture. And it stars Rod Steiger, who is absolutely immense in the lead role. He was Oscar nominated and he absolutely should have won. It was also the first film to feature bare breasts to receive production code approval. So kind of appropriate in the Life Force episode, I oh, guess. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and yeah, when you see the scene you'll understand why it was uh, approved by the production code. It's absolutely essential. It's a central, central moment in this film. Very, very disturbing. And yeah, I watched it on the Criterion channel, but it's on Blu-ray. But yeah, do be warned, it is very dark. The Lumet movie, it reminded me of most, is The Offence. And if you've seen The Offence, you know the kind of atmosphere that I'm talking about. There's something kind of evil at the heart of that film and there's something evil at the heart of uh, The Pawnbroker. But yeah, it is stunning and I couldn't recommend it any higher. The Pawnbroker. Shay, what's next from you? All right, my next recommendation is The Dark Planet from 1989. It might also have evil in its heart, but <laughs> it has a lot of other things in its heart too. <laughs> it was made by a visual artist named Richard Corbin. He did a lot of work with Heavy Metal Magazine. He did tons of horror comics. He is really a master of, of nightmarish universes. And this is a universe he constructed in his own backyard with friends and family. And it, it's kind of framed and made in the way that he illustrates. He has a really unique take on the human body, on proportions. They're all a little bit distorted. 
and it took me some time to get used to, but but he's really grown on me and become one of my favorite comic book artists of all time. Um, this is kind of like a comic book in motion. You can watch it over and over again in the same way you can open up one of his comics and read it over and over again. You'll always find something captivating. This is a title that's not available on any format but VHS. It is on YouTube, but uh, he used to sell these to comic book stores in bulk because he ran out of covers. So <laughs> people who have the cover, that's a very, very rare tape. But uh, yeah, I used to give this away to friends for their birthdays and whatnot. And it's just a, a delightful movie. It's a definitive feast for freaks. It's definitely the kind of movie that's going to blow your mind. I really hope this gets a Blu-ray release. It's going to inspire an entire new generation of sci-fi filmmakers. There's stop motion, there's live action figurines doing crazy shit. It's just absolutely delightful. It's so much fun and yeah, it's the kind of film that we cover on VHS Quest and some of those movies are freaks trying to make commercial stuff. Some of those movies are artists trying to make commercial stuff, but their artistic sensibility kind of overwhelms their commercial instinct. And I think that's probably the best way to describe this movie. It's the work of a true artist, true vision, visually beautiful. Yeah, great, great recommendation. And uh, I know you've got a stack of these tapes, as you say. And one thing you didn't mention is that you would actually draw the cover for your friends as <laughs> I would well. Try, I would try to, I would attempt <laughs> to recreate the cover with marker, crayon, whatever I had. And... <laughs> not very well <laughs> yeah that but that's it that's what the vhs scene's all about it's about sharing movies like this and then kind of being a, a way of expressing something about yourself as well and um yeah great recommendation and for more recommendations like that you can go to vhs quest uh, which is patreon forward slash vhs quest where for four dollars a month we'll recommend all sorts of movies like that. Oh yeah, um, we've quite the catalogue now. We do. We've got over a hundred recommendations yeah. on yeah, there. Yeah. So check us out over at VHS Quest. And that's it. Anything more to say? Anything more to promote? How about how can people follow you in social media? I always forget this bit. Oh yeah, yeah. People can find me on Instagram or Facebook under the label name Black Video. It's Black underscore V V I D E O. Fantastic. And yeah, you can find me over at Instagram at samashes 23 but I'd much rather you came to VHS Quest because uh, we're doing that every week and the episodes have become as long as uh, Arrow episodes now. So uh, while Shay is away, if you miss her, that's where you'll be able to hear her every week. But you will be back. I uh, will be. I'll miss you, but I'll listen. <laughs> 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 I'll miss you too. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, until then, that's it for this week. Dan will be back next time. But until then, thank you so much for listening. And we promise mm, to be more professional mm, next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.